0: We'll hear argument next in Zedner versus United States. Mr. Zoss?
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the Speedy Trial Act protects the public as well as the personal interests of defendants by mandating the prompt disposition of federal criminal prosecutions. In this case, the government and the district court failed to comply with the clear requirements of the Act. (coughs) As relevant here, the Act provides that the trial of a defendant who pleads not guilty and who is released on bail shall commence within 70 days after the indictment. The Act, however, is not as inflexible as it sounds. The Act permits numerous categories of delay to be excluded from the 70-day limit. The Act also provides an enforcement mechanism. If more than 70 non-excludable days elapse between the indictment and the trial, the indictment shall be dismissed. This case concerns two periods of delay that each exceed the 70-day time limit. And I'd like to focus initially on the longer period of delay. This is the delay that took place between 2000 and 2001 after a competency proceeding was taken under advisement. Just to put this delay in context, a competency hearing was held on July 10, 2000. The judge solicited post-hearing briefs. The matter was taken under advisement on August 23, and in our papers we asked the judge to find Petitioner Competent and to set the matter for trial as soon as possible we noted that at that point the case was already more than four years old. We offered to waive a jury and proceed to a bench trial immediately. And at that point the case sat idle for the next 195 days. Now the Act excludes only the first 30 days of that period. That's section 3161 H1J. For reasons that have never been explained, the court sat on the proceeding. When seven months went by, what we about, filed a motion.
2: Mr. Zass that the court thought it was home free on the Speedy Trial Act after all it had gotten a waiver for all time.
0: What?
2: Isn't that why the 165 days?
1: That may be, Justice Ginsburg, but but as of our filing after the competency proceeding, we asked for a trial as soon as possible. So putting aside whether the waiver had any validity at all, which I'll get to shortly, the waiver had no effect when we came in and asked for a trial. Otherwise, defendants would have no right to a speedy trial. Their- yeah, but
3: on, on that one, the, the uh, Second Circuit said that he was incompetent and you could have excluded the time on four, uh, because four allows you to exclude time when he's incompetent. And if, in fact, the district judge is sitting there thinking he's incompetent, then the failure is simply a failure to write down his reason why it's excluded. I guess there's uncertainty here as to what the reason was that the district judge excluded that time. And it's a little bit hypothetical for the reason that Justice Ginsburg mentioned. But if you were to lose on the first point, then I guess on this point the thing to do would be to send it back and determine whether, in fact, the judge intended to exclude on the ground of competency, in which case his failure was simply a failure to note down his reason, which is not required by the Act.
1: Well, Well, just, Breyer, I have several responses for that. The Court only made a finding that Mr. Zedner was incompetent on March 21, 2001. Prior to that time, the competency issue was under advisement. It couldn't be that Mr. Zedner's incompetency, if it existed before the finding, is what prevented the court from declaring him incompetent.
4: You're not quite through your answer yet. But is there also a requirement that the competency determination be made within 30 days, or, or am I am I in error on that point?
1: Your Honor is is exactly right. Any proceeding Please. under Section 3161 H 1J is excluded but only for 30 days once it's taken under advisement.
3: I'm sorry that my act must read differently. My act says in four, any period of delay resulting from the fact that the defendant is mentally incompetent. It doesn't say anything about 30 days.
4: But but that's different, I take it, from the judge's delay in making the finding of competency.
1: That's right, Your Honor. Um, Yes, Justice Breyer, on your reading, a, a court could sit indefinitely with the competency proceeding under advisement. Uh, that's why I'd
3: say I guess on this point we'd have to send it back, because if, in fact, the judge had determined in his mind within the 30-day period that the uh, person was incompetent or he was incompetent in fact, then that could have been his reason. I'm not sure what to do about this point in any case. And I understand that you think he wasn't incompetent, uh, that, or at least it hadn't been so found. Uh, The Second Circuit seemed to think he was incompetent because that was their basis. So uh, I guess if he was, it's excluded. And if he wasn't, it isn't excluded. And I don't know. The Second Circuit said he was, so maybe you should have another chance to argue this before the Second Circuit.
1: Your Honor, um, I'm just trying to envision what that remand would look like. If the court were, if if the case were to go back to the Second Circuit and then go back to the District Court for a finding that this delay resulted from Mr. Zedner's incompetency, that finding would be clearly erroneous. There is no, there is no basis. The, the, the,
5: delay, the delay was not because we can't try this man because he's incompetent, and until he's rendered competent, uh, we, we have to stay proceedings. That wasn't the basis at all. It was just I haven't made up my mind yet.
1: That's right, Your Honor. And the
5: act... Which is what is specifically precluded by the requirement that, that, that you act within 30 days and and all the rest of the time
4: the clock is running.
1: That's correct, Your Honor.
4: And I take it the trial, the Speedy Trial Act doesn't say if the judge is thinking about something, it requires him to make an order.
1: No, Your Honor. it sa- It says that the Court has to decide the matter within 30 days or the clock will start running. Now, the Court, in a particularly difficult or novel question, could could enter an order of uh, an ends of justice exclusion and exclude perhaps an additional. No, I was 30. going to
4: ask you about that. Or could he vacate submission because he wants new evidence or something? Could uh, you I, vacate submission of the of the first competency I, I, hearing in order to take new evidence?
1: Absolutely, Your Honor. And, I, and, and that matter would would, would be back to a, a a situation in which there's examinations or hearings or argument or post hearing brief And the judge can take as long as the judge wants there. But once the court has the matter under advisement, the court only has 30 days.
3: So your view is that we should say that the Second Circuit statement, that the defendant could not have been tried because at that time he was incompetent, that we should simply say that's false, that the Second Circuit's wrong to say that? Well,
1: not quite, Your Honor. the The question is... Did more than seventy non excludable days elapse during this period or not? Once the finding was made in March, that's when Mr. Zedner was incompetent. No further findings was necessary were necessary, and the time is then automatically excluded. The time prior counts toward the seventy day period, whether or not he was in some metaphysical sense, incompetent before then. The question is not whether he could have been tried or not in that per- period. The question is, did more than seventy days elapse? And if the judge had decided this matter sooner, Mr. Zedner would have been received the treatment he ultimately got much sooner, and the trial would have occurred much sooner. That's the purpose of the Speedy Trial Act. Now, the government has abandoned the Second Circuit's holding to the effect that harmless error analysis applies to a violation of the 70-day limit. That's a wise position for the government to take, given this Court's holding in Bozeman, which interpreted essentially the same language. The Court there held that where the statute says the indictment shall be dismissed, there's no room for harmless error analysis. That's the remedy that Congress chose. So in this case, on this this period of delay we're talking about, more than 70 days elapsed. And the remedy must be dismissal.
4: And we've been talking about the competency period. I take it the first period uh, was one of just repeated requests for extensions. That's uh, January 97 until May 97.
1: That's correct.
4: And that's that's the first of the two periods that's involved here.
1: That's correct. This was was an adjournment that was requested by Mr. Zedner's first lawyer for the stated purpose of investigating whether the United States bond supposedly issued by the Ministry of Finance of USA was genuine. The Court, having already obtained a purported waiver of speedy trial for all time, granted the continuance but made no order of excludable delay, as it had done previously, I, made I, I no I don't
4: know if it makes any difference to the case. Do you, do you think the Court uh, could have made findings that would have been justified? I mean, it takes a while to find an expert to say that a bond is genuine when it spells united with an O, but
1: It <laughs> could take for all time, Your Honor. Um, um, I think it would be a very... Close question as to whether that could survive uh, appellate review. That may well be an abuse of discretion to find after having let the matter, delayed the matter already 10 months to grant another three months.
4: Are, 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 there, are there cases in which uh, the judge's findings, but let's assume that he made the findings, are, are, are set aside for abuse of discretion on, on, on review for violation of speedy trial?
1: That is the standard that the courts of appeals have generally applied. I can't recall a case where the court actually reversed an ends of justice finding. There may well be one based on a legal error where it was some obvious ground that, that is not a basis for an attorney
2: complain because in, in all of these instances, it was the defendant who sought the enlarged time. In fact, even though the judge had given gotten this all purpose waiver, he didn't give defense counsel as much time as defense counsel asked for to to investigate the genuineness of the bond.
1: Well, Justice Ginsburg, um, you're right. Certainly the petitioner and his counsel at the time requested this adjournment. They did get the full adjournment they requested, but the judge said that that would be the last adjournment and that the matter would be set for trial then. But whether that time is excludable or not is answered by the statute, the ends of justice provision, recognizes that defendants or prosecutors and judges on their own motion would seek or grant continuances, but that's not enough under the statute. The statute is, although it's flexible, is rigorous. The Court must make a finding that the ends of justice outweigh the public's and the defendant's interest in a speedy trial.
5: And you think it's, it's not harmless error? if they didn't make the finding but, but could
1: have? That's right, Your Honor. It's not harmless for the same reason the later period is not harmless, because the statute says that if the defendant is not brought to trial within the time limits, the indictment shall be dismissed. And it makes very clear that in the absence of an ends-of-justice finding, the time is not excludable.
6: is oh, But isn't, isn't the difference that in the latter period the Court took no action and there is a mandate on the Court to act? With respect to this earlier period, the court did act. Incidentally, it did exactly what the defendant wanted it to do. But it acted so that the only the only reason for arguing error here uh, is, in effect, a clerical reason. He didn't say the magic words or make the magic conclusion. Uh, if, in fact, that's because he couldn't have made it, no question, you you got a violation of the statute. But if he could have made it. Uh, and, and simply didn't say the magic words, you're in a very different position here from what you are in, in, in the case of, of the failure to act on the, on the competency issue.
1: Justice Souter, I would, I would not characterize this as a clerical error. Congress considered this provision the heart of the, of the scheme. This was where
6: — Well, let's put it this way. It's a failure to speak rather than a failure to act. In the the latter case, no action. In this case, action. In fact, action uh, as less has requested, but a failure to speak contemporaneously with the action. That's different.
1: Well, I would disagree again with, with the characterization that it's just a failure to speak. The act requires a careful weighing of the public's interest, the ends of justice, the defendant's interest, um, so it's not just a matter of speaking well, we don't, we the don't
6: know. I mean, on the face of the record, we don't know whether he weighed or whether he didn't weigh. In the second case, we know that he didn't act, uh, and, and action is what he's got to, 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 uh, to, to accomplish. But whether he weighed or not, we don't know. He just didn't say whether he weighed.
1: That's right. But, and the Court also didn't make the finding right. or state the reasons that the statute specifically requires. And the question for the Court is, what flows from that failure? And the answer is given in the sanctions provision. It says that if more than 70 non-excluded days elapse, the indictment shall be dismissed. Now, that provision itself builds in flexibility to take into account exactly what Your Honor is talking about. Mm. A judge may dismiss without prejudice to reprosecution, depending on various factors, including whether it was just an oversight, a failure to recite words. Uh, so that's where this distinction that you're drawing can be taken into account.
6: But it, 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 it requires, in, in order for us to conclude that that's the only way it can be taken account into account, we, we'd, we'd have to conclude uh, that, that Rule 52 was, in effect, partially repealed or made inapplicable uh, implicitly here without any reference to it. And that's that kind of, uh, let's say, Im- implicit modification of, of one of the rules is, as a matter of normal interpretation, disfavored.
1: Well, Your Honor, I think that the principle, well-accepted principle, that the more specific provision will govern over the general governs here. So the remedy provision, the sanctions provision here, says that the indictment shall be dismissed, whether it's 71 days that elapsed or 200 days or five years.
6: But there's always some sanction for error, and the point of the harmless error rule is to determine whether that specific sanction should be applied.
1: Yes, but there's not always an express um, command from Congress as to what the remedy should be. Once Congress says the indictment shall be dismissed, there's no room for a court to say that the indictment shall not be dismissed unless there is some harm shown. So this specific provision trumps the more general provisions of Rule 52A.
3: I'd like to know how uh, how do we know that the judge didn't set forth orally his reasons for finding that the ends of justice outweigh the interest, etc Is that in the record, what, what he actually said?
1: Well, you, you only — I don't
3: know that you'd have to use the exact words, the uh, — ends of justice served, you know, you don't have to I'd I'd like to read what he actually said, and where where is that? It's not on page 192, which is that somebody's opinion, uh, but rather, if I want to read the words, where do I look?
1: Your Honor, this, this, the only place you will find the words here are the transcript of the status conference on January 31, 1997. That's the joint appendix beginning at page 80. And you will not find a finding regarding the ends of justice. You will not find mention of the, uh, the public interest or, or any of the other re- re- balancing factors in the Act. And he didn't it,
5: think he needed it. He, he had a perpetual waiver.
1: That's correct. This judge stopped complying with the Act on November 8, 1996, because the Court ruled that the waiver for all time was valid. Um, you know, that was a an injudicious finding, to say the least. Uh, Five minutes' worth of legal research would have shown that all the courts of appeals at the time had already held that the waivers were invalid. Mm -hmm. So the Court didn't do a balancing, didn't think it was doing a balancing. The Court uh, has a colloquy in which it appropriately expressed skepticism about the need for this delay. And the Court does, in effect, what Congress was concerned about. It Indulged defense counsel and said, well, if you don't care enough, I don't care enough. Take three more months. That's basically what happened.
5: MR. Mr. you are going to talk about estoppel?
1: Yes, Your Honor. The, the government, um, for the first time uh, on, uh, here in this Court, has unveiled a new doctrine that hadn't been in the case before. It's no longer relying on either the waiver for all time or the sort of mini waiver for the, um, the January delay. But it argues that Petitioner is estopped from challenging the 90-day delay in 1997. There are several problems with the government's argument, but the most obvious one is that the only conduct that the government cites to trigger the estoppel is the waiver.
6: Well, isn't there something more than a waiver here? I mean, waiver is a very broad term, and it would cover a situation, for example, in which the government asked for time, and the defendant said, okay, I waive. In, in this case, there's, there's an affirmative act on the part of the defendant. He's not merely waiving. He is affirmatively asking for action on the part of the court uh, and subject, I guess, to cutting down the period somewhat. He got what he asked for. This is something more than waiver. Uh, this is, in fact, a, a grant of specific relief requested by him, and he now wants to turn the tables uh, based on receiving exactly what he asked for. That's more than waiver.
1: Well, Your Honor, right. I, I, I can't disagree with what you've said, but but the step I, I can I do. <laughs> did, did did he ask for a perpetual
5: waiver? I thought the way the colic we went, the judge said. Uh, no you know i can 't give you a waiver unless you'll, unless you 'll make it a perpetual waiver, and then he said okay i 'll make it a perpetual waiver what wasn 't wasn 't the the initiative for the perpetual waiver from from the
1: court that 's right your honor and but hasn 't
6: my brother cleverly changed my hypothetical because I was <laughs> I, I, was not talking about the perpetual waiver. I was talking about the waiver, uh, for whatever number of days he actually, uh, took in, in that case, which was what, 90 days?
1: Yes, uh, I think, I think there are two I, different I, I, waivers okay, that, are, okay. that are before the court. So, so Justice Sudi, your question is about not the waiver for all time, but the more limited action in requesting and obtaining the continuance. Now, ordinarily, without a statute like this, the defendant getting what he wants would amount to a waiver, and the defendant couldn't complain. For example, an evidentiary ruling. If, if the defendant wants to allow it, you know, doesn't object to evidence coming in, that's it. He can't later argue that it should not have come in. The problem here is that the statute, the Congress, knew that this kind of thing would happen. Defendants would want delay. Defendants would be quite happy to put off their trial for as long as they could,
2: As long as they're not in jail pending trial.
1: That's right. That's right. If they're out in the community, Congress wanted those people to be tried. Uh, And so the ends of justice provision specifically says that a request for continuance granted by the Court is not enough to exclude time. There has to be both a finding and a statement of reasons in the record to support the finding before the time will be excluded.
3: Maybe you could say, then, that it's the government that has the right. If it's the government that has the right, then the government should have objected. I mean, the problem, of course, is obvious that it's a little hard on the district judges that uh, people come in, and both sides tell them what you have to have here is a waiver. Are you sure you won't raise this against me later? I'm positive. I swear. You mean you absolutely swear a thousand times that no matter what I do and have delay, you will never raise this as an error and it's fine? Yes. Okay? So he says, okay, fine, done. You win. And he raises it as an error. That's a rather called sandbagging the judge. And uh, obviously, one would look to or I would look to ways to avoid that, but you're telling me I can't avoid it, and uh, that's what Congress wanted, and so be it. Is that right?
1: Well, it's, it's partially correct, Your Honor.
3: Um, How is it not correct? That's what I'm mean.
1: Well, it's, it's not correct because I would, I, would, I, I would disagree with the characterization, if that's what Your Honor is doing, of, of anything that happened here as being I'm not
3: sand-backed. talking about here. I'm saying that in your, if I adopt your position in this case, I would have to have the same position. I would think, in the most egregious cases. Wouldn't I? Because the only reason I'd adopt it here is because of Congress wanted it. No matter what. Yes. Is that right?
1: Yes, that And you
3: said and am I right in characterizing?
1: Well that that is what the stat that is what the statute says. But Your Honor shouldn't shouldn't tarry too long about the consequences. Because if this court holds, as we asked the court to hold, that waivers are no good waivers have to be treated essentially as a request for a continuance, this problem goes away.
3: Maybe. I mean, judges are very busy. Not all the prosecutors get the word. It's very hard to ask district judges to raise something on their own in the face of lawyers who are telling them the opposite. So you say, oh, they'll all know. I've noticed there are a lot of opinions we write that they don't know about (laughs) until,
1: say, the lawyers point them out. Well, Your Honour, the alternative, if you go sort of the government's route here, is to essentially perpetuate the confusion that brought us here in the first place. The government essentially argues, "Well, you can't waive, but sometimes you can waive. We're not quite. We're not going to tell you exactly when you can waive. That's going to put district judges in a in a worse position, this, in a more
2: This confusion. was the judge who, who apparently was doing this as a, a matter of standard practice. He had a form that he whipped out. It must be a very old form. It looked like it was typed on a regular typewriter.
1: That, that's right, Jerome. This form was, was pre printed or pre typed. It's
5: gothic print. Right?
1: <laughs> it could have come from my chambers. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and as we point out in the reply brief, the, the judge had taken a, a strong legal position 20 years earlier that the requirements of the Act could be waived.
4: I was going to ask, what's the date of the Speedy Trial Act, like 1975?
1: I think the President Ford signed it on January 3rd, 1975.
4: And it was widely publicized among the judiciary then?
1: Yes, yes. Yes. And, and it, you know, this is not an, a new statute. Judges are used to, to complying with it. Prosecutors are used to doing it. And frankly, I've never seen a waiver for all time before. It, it's not the kind of thing that will happen, and it should never happen again.
0: Can you if, make or, an ends-of-justice finding for all time? Could he start at the beginning? Any continuance I grant is granted after my weighing the different factors set forth in the statute, and it's in the ends of justice.
1: I don't think so, Your Honor. In fact, there, there is a, a circuit split on on whether you can, whether a court can grant an open-ended continuance. I think, Your, Your Honor's ends of justice continuance would amount to a waiver or a suspension of the Act. Thank you very much. Thank you, Counsel. Uh,
0: Mr. Josefer?
7: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, on the first of the time periods, it might help if I could start by laying out three basic principles. The first is that a defendant may not opt out of the act by waiver. The second is that a a defendant is nonetheless precluded from challenging the grant of a continuance that he requested. If the continuance satisfies the substantive ends-of-justice standards of the Act, and the defendant's waiver or other litigation conduct induce the Court to commit the procedural error of not recording an ends-of-justice finding in the record, And the third related point, although it's not presented here, is that the courts of appeals have recognized that if a defendant requests an ends-of-justice continuance and the court, in a procedurally regular manner, grants the ends-of-justice continuance, the defendant cannot later be heard to contend that the ends-of-justice were not really satisfied, even though he had told the court that they were. We think the reasons for those three rules stems from the reason that defendants cannot opt out of the act in the first place. Although the Act does not contain an express anti-waiver or anti-estoppel provision, it does manifest an intent to bind defendants to its requirements in order to protect the public interest in a speedy trial. If a defendant could opt out of the Act altogether and thereby obtain delays that are not authorized by the Act, that would thwart the public interest in a speedy trial.
4: But but as we've indicated, the, the judge was the one that opted out of the Act by this regular practice of requiring the perpetual waiver, or whatever we call it.
7: I, I guess there, there are a couple things there. Um, one is that we are not defend, we, we are not here relying on the waiver for all time. Um, our point instead here is that when defendant requested the continuance at issue here, it was the defendant that said, Your Honor, I, I need a continuance and I waive my rights so you should give me the continuance, and then also said he needed additional preparation time. The court then, and this this is in J, J from about page 81 to 85, the court then said, well, why do you need the time? The court discussed with him for a while why he really needed additional preparation time, um, reminded counsel that notwithstanding the waiver, this was a criminal case, and criminal cases do need to be tried, um, and then ended up balancing the defendant's desire for preparation against the need for a speedy trial um, by granting a much shorter continuance than requested. And that is actually an entirely appropriate ends-of-justice balancing. Ends of justice reasons. It's pretty only. hard to read those
3: pages as if they were anything other than what they seemed to be on their face, that he didn't worry about the Speedy Trial Act because he thought that they had been waived.
7: I, I think you're absolutely right that the Court was not at that point thinking in terms of applying the Speedy Trial Act. Well, then but, why yeah. isn't that the end of that,
3: that, that uh, you, you, it's, if you agree that the defendant can't waive it? Well, the reason that he got the continuance is because he waived it. Now, well, what, Otherwise, there would have been something else done, and, uh, or at least might have been.
7: Right. Well, now our, I mean, we, we think there are two related points. One is that a, a genuine opt-out of the waiver, and a, a general opt-out of the Act, an attempt to obtain time that's not excludable under the Act is not permissible, because that would thwart the public interest in a speedy trial. But where the error is a purely procedural one of failing to record findings in the record regarding a continuance that is permitted under the substantive standards of the Act, then holding the defendant to the waiver under a theory of either waiver or estoppel, and our view doesn't matter How which. Can we
2: say it's purely procedural with respect to the first time. I mean, the reason that was given is, I have to, I need this time to find out if these really peculiar-looking bonds are genuine. Now, the, the Second Circuit said, and I don't understand why they said this. This is a complex case, so that continuance was warranted. Was this a complex case?
7: Uh, complex defendants can make for complex
2: cases.
7: (laughs) And this is, I think, the ultimate example of that. But in addition, it's important to remember that at the end of this 90 day period that was granted, defense counsel withdrew on the ground that his client was still insisting that he present the frivolous defense that that the bonds were genuine. And before withdrawing and telling the court that, the, the defense counsel had a very serious duty to his client and the court to continue to investigate what his client was saying was the defense and to continue to try to work with his client and try to come up with a plausible defense strategy. Now, it did didn't work, and Counsel had to withdraw, but I don't think he can be faulted for trying.
4: Did the government at any point tell the, uh, tell the Court, uh, Your Honor, we think the Act requires you to make a specific finding and we request you do that?
7: No, the government, I mean, on the one hand, the government did not seek these delays, did not encourage the waiver, did not rely on the waiver at the, at the relevant times. However, um at the time, I mean... Because, I mean, you're coming in and saying, oh, well, he waived, but uh, it,
4: it, certainly the government could uh, could have asked the, asked the district court to make the necessary findings.
7: Right. I mean, at the time of... of of this this was about 10 years ago now. The Second Circuit had recently held that waiver is not ordinarily appropriate, but sometimes is. And so everyone in the Bar, I mean, has been acting under some, some confusion. Uh, we think that, that, frankly, to some extent, persists to this day. We think that the best way to clarify matters going forward is, is a combination of two things I mentioned earlier, to say, first, defendants cannot opt out of the Act by waiver um, to just try to discourage waivers, but to say that mistakes will happen. And that when a a continuance, when a court grants a specific continuance um, that is authorized under the substantive standards of the Act, that at that point in time, the defendant's waiver or other conduct that induces the court not to make the findings um, prevents the defendant from trying to seize on a purely procedural violation on appeal, because at that point, I mean, remember, the, the reason for, for a, a, a partial anti-waiver rule here is not that there's a specific anti-waiver or anti-stoppel provision in the Act. It's that Congress has, on the whole, manifested an intent to protect the public interest in a speedy trial. But if the time is excludable under the substantive standards of the Act, a purely procedural error does not diminish the public's interest in the speedy trial. What, 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 because what the, are you the the hypothesizing
5: that the court? Um, actually made this finding in its mind but just didn't express it? Or are you hypothesizing that the Court could have made it but didn't make it, never even went through the mental process? We think
7: that, legally speaking, all that matters is that the Court could have. Could and have the, made once,
5: it. So, so once, we're, we're, we're going to... Why can't life be simple? We're going to have to have trials all the time as to whether, in this hypothetical situation, this finding could have been made. I mean, you know, this, this creates... Uh, subsidiary litigation that we really don't need.
7: In in some instances, it may add to an additional degree of complexity, although I'll say that whatever that might be, it's still less than the complexity of retrying the case. Um, And also, I think more often than not, on the face of the record, I mean, these these determinations can be made. Here, for example, I mean, if if a court grants a continuance for any reason, it's going to ask the reasons why. Here the court questioned counsel as to whether he really needed more time, explained Is basic reasoning for doing so. And so when when it's apparent on the record that the continuance could have been granted, um, that's certainly a much less complex you ask the the judge, You say, Judge,
3: two months ago, the defendant came to you and said, I waive the Speedy Trial Act. Now the defendant says, Judge, I now would like a month's continuance. The judge says, I'll give it to you. The opposing counsel says, why? He says, because he waived it. Now, you're telling me that, one, he cannot waive it. But, two, even though the judge said I did it because he waived it, that still itself is okay. We go ahead and let him exclude it because the judge might have done something differently. Isn't well, that no, what you're saying?
7: Well, there, you would need more on the record there because if, if the record was limited to what you just said, well, it, it would be possible you this
3: could argument. argue looking at the record that the judge should have tried it, should have excluded it on a different basis. He should have excluded it on the basis that the interests of justice etc., require it. So what the judge said, just to make it clear, is I'm not even thinking about this different basis, though I might. I'm doing it just because he waived it. And now you're telling me I take it. He can't waive it, but nonetheless, the error is harmless because he waived it, or something like that.
7: Yeah, this, at this point, we're not at the harmlessness point yet. This, this would be what- not the harmless.
3: You're saying right. it's a procedural error.
7: Right. And, and so qu- we
3: don't say the judge is right because he waived it. We're saying he's right because the judge made a procedural error. I'm having a hard time following
7: well, that. Well, I mean, That's anytime similar. you're talking about a waiver or a estoppel theory, the premise is that there, there may well have been an underlying error, and the question is whether the defendant is precluded. And here there's no question there was an underlying error because the findings were not required and were not reported in the Act. But the Act, is not, again, does not contain an express anti-waiver provision, and the speedy trial interests, which are the reason for reading, to some extent, an anti-waiver provision, are, are, are not diminished when the Court could have properly excluded the time from the Act. And to the contrary, speedy trial interests would be harmed in that manner for three reasons. First, it gives defendants every reason to delay in hopes of manufacturing a speedy trial violation. Second, waiver and estoppel are generally important to the efficient and orderly conduct of litigation. And if you take those, that out, what you will get is less efficient litigation and more delays, which Congress recognized when, as part of the Speedy Trial Act, it required the courts to develop management plans for the efficient handling of cases. But,
5: you know, Congress could have, could have written it the way, the way you're proposing it. Congress could have said, you know, when there, when, when there is good cause for the continuance, uh, the clock won't run. It didn't say that. It, it said the judge has to make a finding. I, I mean, do, don't we have to give that some effect? You're saying it really doesn't matter whether he makes the finding or not. So long as there was good cause so that a finding could have been made, that'll be enough.
7: Now, our, our, our view is that, I mean, like, any time that waiver or estoppel is at issue, one could say that that's being read into the statute, but the point is, as this court has explained in Hill and, and, and Mezzanotto, is that those are background principles of law that presumptively apply. Our view is this. A court should make the finding, but... A defendant defendant may not challenge the finding if a few conditions are satisfied. First, the defendant was the one requesting the continuance and benefiting from it. Second, the finding could have been made on the record in the case. And third, the defendant is responsible in some way for inducing the court not to make the finding. It could be by a waiver, or it could be the defendant's, or it could be the court saying, I've decided it's appropriate to make an end of justice finding. Now let me record this in the record, and defense counsel saying, Your Honor, Please don't bother. It's late. We've got four more things to do. We don't need the findings. In that circumstance as well, it's not a waiver, but defense counsel would have, abs- the defendant at that point should not be heard to complain about well, the Well, it seems of to me the government
4: is to. equally remiss for not pointing out the obligations of the court under the Act. But let me ask you this, um, although you can respond to that as well if you like. Um, what are the um, problems with reindicting? Uh, I mean, how is, how is the government heard if it can reindict? Uh, I recognize that it's costly to the system, et cetera. But is there any real prejudice there?
7: Well, I mean, there are two concerns. One is, as you said, the, the, the cost of having to do a brand-new jury trial after you've already done a fair one. The second is that, I mean, in this case, the trial was three years ago. Well, of
4: course, I, I'm, I'm supposing that after this rule there would be no trial because there would be a if, – if, if you don't prevail, uh, there wouldn't be a trial.
7: Oh, I th- well, if, if dismissal was required in this case, I think dismissal would be without prejudice, um, as opposed to with prejudice, and therefore we. And, we I, hope and, I,
4: and I'm asking, are there, are there severe costs with that when there's been no trial?
7: If there had not already been. Oh, there, there's, I, there's, this there's is no pre trial. It's pre-trial the, the,
4: act, the action is dismissed for a Speedy Style <laughs> Act violation because the uh, position of the petitioner here is accepted by this court, and the government just reindicts. Oh, well, there's already been a trial, but. I'm hypothesizing that there hasn't been okay. cases dismissed. It's dismissed before and reported. It's a costly is that the system other than getting the grand jury together?
7: Sorry, I understand. Yeah, if, if pretrial, if the district court dismisses, um, then the government ordinarily could reindict for, If the court dismisses without prejudice, the government ordinarily could reindict very quickly. And the, this cost of the system would not be great. The real cost of the system comes in when the district court does not dismiss and holds the trial. Um, because then the trial has been held, and that by the time you get back down to the trial court, I mean in this case it will probably be four years. Um, and at that point, sometimes you can do a retrial, but sometimes memories fade, witnesses are lost, other sources of proof are lost, and as a result, you end up with, with fairly—you can end up with very severe consequences um, in situations where the first is, trial is, is held. Is
2: there a statute of limitations problem in it, in these cases if their dismissal is without prejudice?
7: No, there's a uh, — the Judicial Code contains a, a provision that generally uh, contains a six-month grace period for limitations following dismissal by a court. So we would have — I mean, by now, the limitations period would have run, but we would have six months to to, to reindict. Counsel,
0: okay. well, so your arg- — the, arg- the argument you're making is really one of an invited error, and I'm not sure it even applies on these facts. I mean, the, the defense lawyer didn't, as you hypothesized in one of your answers, say something to the effect of, don't worry, you don't need to make any findings of the ends of justice or anything like that. He just said, I'm waiving my speedy trial rights. And that may mean he's not going to argue, you know, that the ends of justice don't justify it or whatever. He's just saying, I, I don't have any objection. Maybe he assumed that the judge would go on and say, okay, I'm making the findings required by subsection 8A.
7: Well, I think when, it, when, when, a, when a litigant, expressly waives his rights under an act, that the very natural effect of that is to make the court think it does not have to follow that act, and that would include the findings requirement. Um,
2: well, in this case, the judge told the defendant, I've got a solution to this. Here's my form.
7: No, it was the, I mean, in context, there are two, at the earlier status conference, that does not relate to this hearing, but at the earlier status conference, it was defendant who said, Your Honor, I want to continue. and said I want to waive my rights. And in response to defendant's invocation of a waiver, the court said, well, if you're going to waive, you have to waive for all time, because the court was concerned the defendant would selectively waive until it was inconvenient for the court to try the case. We don't defend the court's response to that, but the point is that even then, it was the defendant who raised waiver first. And then at this status conference regarding this particular continuance, the de- defendant was the only one talking about waiver. Defendant said, um, the defendant initially raised it and said, I, I waive my rights, and then came back to it again. I waive my rights, just give me the continuance. And the court said... I mean, the Court did say that, well, if you've already waived, you don't have to again. Um, but he then said that notwithstanding the waiver, he couldn't give the defendant an open-ended amount of time because this is a criminal trial. Um, so it was defendant who was, who was pressing this at all times.
8: Do you have any idea how often this, this sort of situation comes up where there's an alleged violation of the Act and then a denial by the District Court of a pretrial motion to dismiss
7: I think that happens with some regularity. There's quite a lot of Court of Appeals case law in which defendants are protesting speech trial violations. I mean, actually quite a lot. Um, you, you made
6: an argument a moment ago uh, in, in which in, included the point that he asked for this particular relief and represented what he needed to do if he got the relief, the continuance. You, you came right up within a step of, of making a judicial estoppel Claim, although you did not use those terms. I have two questions. Did the government uh, raise uh, at least the the theory of judicial estoppel uh, in the litigation before it reached this point? And the second question is, uh, even if the government did not raise that term, uh, ask for, for estoppel to be applied in those terms, did the government make the same argument that you have just made, which emphasizes the fact that he asked for it and he represented the reasons for for needing
7: it? Yeah, in the in, in the court of in the first question, the court of appeals we referred to our argument as one of waiver rather than estoppel, in part because that's what the Second Circuit had in, in the past referred to it as being. Um, and, yes, in substance, we were – we, we raised uh, – I mean, we were raising a similar waiver argument below <coughs> to the one that we are now. Um, we don't think it matters greatly whether one calls it waiver or estoppel, um, except that we do think that estoppel is, is the is – the, the preferable way of looking at it, because, we're, as, as is pointed out, we're talking here not just about a waiver, but also about a situation where a defendant requests relief.
6: Yeah, it's a difference position. between acquiescence and, and potentially sandbagging.
7: Yeah, I mean, here the defendant affirmatively requesting relief on the basis of one, petition, uh, one position and is now seeking dismissal based on the fact that his first position was accepted and received that relief. And that's the situation in which judicial estoppel is, is frankly tailor-made for. Um, and I think that the fact that judicial estoppel prevents that very situation helps to underscore the, that if, if Congress really wanted to
5: — Except where there's a public policy against what you want to stop him into doing. I mean, it seems to me for the same reason that you don't allow a waiver, you shouldn't allow an estoppel. There's a public policy against it. The the Congress wanted these things f- uh, uh, tried promptly, and, and uh, whether — he merely waives or, or goes further and, and affirmatively causes the Court to do something which it shouldn't have done. You're, you're just as much violating the policy, it seems to me.
7: Well, I, I think the, I mean, I, I agree that, I mean, whether it's waiver or it's estoppel, if Congress manifests an affirmative intent, to displace those doctrines, they don't apply. It doesn't matter which, which one you're under. But the, the affirmative intent that Congress manifested here, notwithstanding, I mean, remember, there's no express anti-wave or anti stoppel provision, but the affirmative intent is to protect the public's interest in a speedy trial. And that, that intent is entirely protected when a, a delay could be, is permitted by the substantive standards of the Act, and the only error is a procedural one that the defendant helped to induce the Court to commit. And I mentioned before, in that circumstance, there's not only no... Delay that was not contemplated by Congress. But as I mentioned before, there are three reasons that permitting defendants seek dismissal in that circumstance would actually harm speedy trial rights. First, the incentive for defendants to delay. Second, the inefficiency. And the third is that, remember, one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, Congress wanted speedy trials was it was concerned that defendants out on bail were committing crimes. And Congress concerned with crime prevention is not served in the least by letting a defendant seek dismissal of an indictment based on a purely procedural error that he helped to cause.
5: If, if what you say is true, I don't know why it makes any difference uh, that the defendant uh, led the court into it. If you if you believe that this is just a procedural nicety that was not uh, complied with, why shouldn't you uh, uh, do the same thing when uh, when the court fails to make the finding but could have made the finding,
7: whether or not the defendant was the one that led him into it? Well, the question then would be harmless error analysis. I mean, we agree the statute requires the finding to be made. It was not made. Therefore, there was an error. Um, and it's, it's the defendant inducing him. The court but but it, it's is. harmless error because
4: the, uh, he, the evidence of guilt was substantial? Well, how, well, how does the harmless error work?
7: No, if, if, if one moved beyond the inducement and into harmless error, um, the question would be, would be that here the the, um, the error I think as was mentioned before, the error here would be the failure would, would be the clerical one—the error to record findings in the act. And I think, and we would agree that the act pointing to the second question now—but the act does expressly say that if a defendant is not tried within seventy relevant days, the indictment shall be dismissed. And that suggests that harmless error analysis would not be appropriate to the question whether seventy-one or eighty-one days of delay is appropriate, because Congress said seventy. Seventy. Um, but when the error is not that, but the error is failing to record something in the record, that's a distinct type of error that's not covered by the mandatory dismissal provision. And it could be considered harmless, especially in circumstances where the record why, why do you
0: Why do you put that in a separate category? It's kind of unusual for Congress to put that type of a requirement in the statute. They could have normally, I suspect they normally would write it, You know, they're excludable uh, uh, only if the Court finds in the interest of justice. But they went further, and they said if the Court sets forth, orally or in writing, in the record of the case. I mean, they set it forth as a separate requirement. I don't know that we can give it sort of a second-class status.
7: I I agree that that Section H8 is different from the incompetence exclusion, for example, which I'll I'll turn to in a minute, in in that it does tie the the findings um, to the excludability. Um, and that makes the, the harmless error argument that we have on that issue obviously more difficult than on the, the incompetency issue. But it's still, I think, it ultimately comes down to how you how you view the error. Is the error not trying someone within 70 days, or is the error not recording a finding in the record? Um, and if, if you focus on, on the findings, the better,
0: error is not complying with the Act.
7: Right. And then, but the, but the, I mean, ordinarily that, just not complying with the Act generally is harmless. And then the question would be, um, is, is that nonetheless — because, remember, the only, the only thing that's subject to mandatory dismissal is not trying someone within 70 relevant days.
5: Yes, but within 70 relevant days, counted as the statute requires them to be counted, which includes the requirement of this finding set forth in the record before you can stop the clock running for, uh, you know, for some period. I don't think that that's — I don't think that's very complicated.
7: Right, and then, I mean, if, if that's the way it's viewed, then on the first time period, the H-8, then uh, we would stand on our, stand on either of the, the waiver and stop argument, or also on the possibility that another middle ground would be, if what we're missing is a finding in the record, um, the other option would be to remand for the court to clarify the record.
2: Which,
0: oh, no, that does the, pardon?
7: The, the,
2: is that, is there any reason to believe that the judge, of course, would clarify it and say, the ends of justice, if we took your remand solution.
7: Right. And obviously ordinarily courts would not be doing that. It's a very inefficient thing to do in the ordinary course. Um, But here where the transcript does reflect, the court actually considered, on the one hand, the defendant's need for additional time, and on the other hand, um, the interest in trying criminal cases sooner rather than later and balance them by granting a a lesser, it it does seem more reasonable.
2: It seems to me that in this case that that all-purpose, waiver that the judge, and not for the first time proposed, is 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 what caused all this. And, and my question that I had is, knowing that this was the judge's practice, and indeed he had written about it, did the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office try to do something to say, look, the Act doesn't permit that kind of thing?
7: Now, at the, at the time, I mean, there was, there was, especially as was 10 years ago, there was, and to some extent still is, quite a lot of confusion in the bar on these issues because there's no express anti-waiver provision. There's, and, and, as I said, the, the Second Circuit in Vino had held waivers not ordinarily appropriate, but an had not said it was never appropriate. Um, so there was some confusion. But what, what the government never did uh, was to encourage a waiver or to um, encourage any of these delays either. Now, on this I've I blurred to some extent into the second question presented in talking about the, the remand and the harmlessness. On the second question presented, um, the first question is whether the incompetency exclusion applies in the first place. In our view, it's a very simple exclusion. Del- if, if delay results from the defendant's incompetency, the time is excluded. And if the defendant is incompetent, delay results from that because a person cannot be tried when he is incompetent. Because we have finding here that the defendant was incompetent during the relevant period of time, the exclusion applies.
5: But it was not known at the time that he was incompetent, and, and therefore that could not have been the reason that he was not being tried. The reason he was not being tried was that, the, that there was pending before the judge the inquiry into whether he was competent.
7: Well, the, the Act has a lengthy series of these resulting from exclusions. And with the exception of H8, which is unusual in terms of the ends of justice finding, these operate automatically, as this Court said in Henderson. It's, it's an objective standard. If, if the defendant could not have been tried then, then the delay resulted, at least as a concurrent cause, from that. And, there's, and it's, it's very important to understand, too, that in the context of especially the, the exclusion for when pretrial motions are pending, the Courts of Appeals have unanimously held that a more complicated causation analysis not only is not required, but would throw a wrench into the practical application of the act. Because what happens, for example, is someone files a pretrial motion and the parties assume that the the clock is turned off then for at least some time. But a defendant later argues that, well, the same delay would have resulted anyway because, say, the judge was on vacation or the judge uh, was planning on recusing himself and reassigning the case. And at that point, the courts have recognized that you, you don't look to try to figure out which of several potential causes is, is the irrelevant one. They're all potential objective concurrent causes, and any other approach would make it very difficult to administer the act.
5: You really don't know the answer of whether the clock is running until the finding is made. If the, if the judge finds that, that, that he's not incompetent, well, too bad. You know, the uh, Speedy Trial Act uh, uh, requires dismissal. On the other hand, if the judge finds that he is incompetent to be tried, there hasn't been a violation of that. I mean, that's a very strange situation. And it also, as the uh, uh, the other side points out, it it puts considerable pressure on the judge uh, when when he is in violation of the Speedy Trial Act to find that the individual is incompetent, because otherwise uh, there has to be a dismissal.
7: Well, I, I don't think it's appropriate to presume that an Article 3 judge would have a defendant imprisoned and committed if he was not actually co- incompetent. But you, you are right that the, the incompetency exclusion is, is, along with the unavailability of the defendant or witness exclusions, are somewhat unusual in that you could discover after the fact that they applied. But the reason is that if, if you had tried to try him sooner, you would have discovered the same thing. He actually was incompetent. The act- witness actually was unavailable. And from a speedy trial perspective, It makes no sense to say the speedy trial clock ran because he didn't try a defendant when he was legally unable to be tried.
2: Are you you relying to any extent on something that I think you brought up? He also could not have been tried because the prosecutor was having a difficult pregnancy and she was on extended leave, which was occurring in this period.
7: We haven't relied on that because that would have been the, that, that's an appropriate basis for an end-of-justice end of continuance, but no continuance was ever sought or granted for the relevant period. Um, so we, al- although that is true that an end-of-justice continuance might have been granted for that reason, there was no continuance of any kind granted during that period. So we're relying solely on the plain language of the incompetency exclusion. Um, and if you think about I mean,
0: even if we agree with you on the incompetency exclusion, we still have to reach the waiver for all time question, correct? You don't argue that the incompetency goes back that far, do you?
7: No, we are. We no, especially the first time period. We're relying on the specific waiver that was tendered in connection with that actual continuance. You're not
0: suggesting he was incompetent during
7: that period as well. Oh, the defendant was incompetent the whole time. Yeah. No. There was actually earlier on in the case, there, was an, uh, there were three competency hearings. The first one was held competent, and that, that was earlier on in the proceedings. Um, the finding of incompetency in the record here is that the defendant found the defendant incompetent at the end of the relevant period, based entirely on evidence and argument presented at the beginning of the relevant period. So when the, defend- when the Court held that the defendant must be incompetent based on that evidence, he was saying the defendant necessarily was saying the defendant must have been incompetent during the entire relevant period based on the evidence from the beginning of the period.
6: And am, am I correct that the, the particular provision that you think is relevant here is, is, uh, is H-1A on page 4 of the, the appendix? No, I'm sorry. At? It is H-4.
7: H-1A deals with um, proceedings regarding the defendant's incompetency. i I've, I've got it. Okay. And that applies whether the defendant is competent or not. We're relying on H-4, which applies when the defendant was incompetent.
6: What, what, what do you make of the language any period of delay resulting from the fact that the defendant is mentally incompetent? I mean, the claim here is uh, that that, the, that the, the delay did not result from that fact, but simply from the failure of, of the judge to make that determination. So that what you're really doing is making a harmless error analysis.
7: Uh, Well, I'm happy to move to that as well. But before that, I mean, it, it is there can be concurrent causes and there can be objective concurrent causes. And the defendant could not have been tried during the relevant time period. And therefore, objectively speaking, that was at least, I mean, if the defend, if the court had tried, okay, tried to try to get a period, isn't that act. a
6: harmless error analysis, uh, rather than a, a subsection four analysis?
7: Well, I think Congress, I mean, you're right that it's based in part on the principle that, look, of, of course he couldn't have been tried then. Um, but, you know, Congress also made that relevance whether there's a violation at all. Just it simplified things. Let's take that off the table. If the defendant's incompetent, there's certainly going to be a constitutional speedy trial violation. Let's just take it off the table for, for, for the act purposes as well. The argument's been made But, but the, it, I, I guess my only point is that Ford does not say uh, any period
6: during which the defendant is mentally incompetent It says any period of delay resulting from the fact that he was mentally incompetent, and this did not result from that fact until at the end of the period, the judge says, oh, I find him incompetent, so that any period after that would be the result of the fact that he was incompetent. But the the delay up to that point was attributable solely to the judge's failure to make a determination.
7: If I could answer the question. If it was a question, yes. The the (laughs) fact it was it was cleverly disguised, but it really wasn't. (laughs) I'll try to give a cleverly disguised answer. Isn't that so? (laughs) The the fact existed all along. I mean, the the, the, the fact doesn't come into existence once it's found. The finding reflects the fact that the fact of incompetency had existed during the entire relevant period.
0: Thank you, Counsel, Mr. Zas. You have four minutes remaining.
1: Mr. Chief Justice, I'd like to pick up on questions that both you and Justice Scalia asked regarding the the language of the statute. One of the Court's bedrock principles is that judges are not free to rewrite the statute that Congress has enacted. This statute and the whole statutory scheme here speaks very clearly and very precisely, and it would be unwise, even if permitted, for the Court to start tinkering with it, because the whole system will start to unravel if the the requirement of express findings and reasons turns into a could-have, would-have, should-have contest, in which case trial judges will take the act less seriously, knowing that the Court of Appeals could make the findings for them. And it will make the Court of Appeals job harder, because they'll be guessing after the fact what discretionary decision the trial judge would have made. This statute, the ends of justice provision, is very clear. The government has cited no ambiguity, and it controls, because the findings were not made, whether they could have been made or should have been made or would have been made, they weren't made, and therefore the time ran, and dismissal is required. Now, the government proceeds under the false assumption that but for the waiver, the judge would have granted this continuance on January 31, 1997. There is absolutely no support for that in the record. Even before this occasion, on November 8, 1996, which was the prior court appearance, the court said, "You're not getting another adjournment unless you waive for all time." So there's no reason to think that at this later date, the court was about to say, "Well, forget the waiver. Okay, I'll give you three months." It's it's the waiver that is providing the basis for the exclusion. The judge, if pushed, would have said, "No, we're going to trial soon. No waiver, no more time." So it's a false assumption. Um, I'd like to turn to the second period again. The government again assumes that when the judge found Mr. Zedner incompetent in March of 2001, that that is a retroactive determination that he was incompetent from July, August,
0: September, October, November, etc. And as the court is it goes aware, back some way, because he's looking at reports from those earlier times, it's not only effective as of the date he makes the finding.
1: Well, the the finding is effective from that point forward. That has to be the case because, as Justice Scalia pointed out, it's important for the parties to know, as matters are unfolding, what the speedy trial clock is. That way the government knows to push the cases that are approaching the 70 day limit to trial. People can't know that answer if everyone's waiting to find out what the outcome of a pending motion is. And the defendant, in fact, couldn't move for dismissal under the Act until the the judge said, after one or two years, I find the defendant incompetent.
8: You mean? I, I guess the you judge- can be. I'm sorry. Go ahead. If the judge, when he finally found the defendant competent, had said expressly, and I, I made this determination in my mind shortly after the hearing and the, the, the briefs that were submitted at that time, but now I'm putting it on the record, that wouldn't be sufficient.
1: No, Your Honor. If the judge had said. I knew this all along back when I heard the evidence that this defendant was incompetent. That would be an even more egregious violation. The Court's not supposed to sit and just let the defendant uh, sit out on the streets for month after month after month when, he, when the defendant is incompetent. The Court's supposed to make a, a prompt finding.
8: Where does the Act say that, that there has to be a finding at the time?
1: Well, the, court say, the, the Act says it in, in Section H1J. That's the, the, in the appendix to the blue brief on page five. The act excludes time while the proceed, proceeding is, is going on for examinations and hearings, et cetera, but at the end it excludes only delay reasonably attributable to any period not to exceed 30 days, during which any proceeding concerning the defendant is actually under advisement by the court. So, so, but the, if no, it,
8: but there's no provision, is there, that says that the finding under B-4, that there has to even be a finding under B-4, at much less when the finding has to be made?
1: If I may answer the question, Your um, Well, the only finding that the Court has to make under B-4 is that the defendant is incompetent. That automatically will exclude the time going forward until the defendant is restored to competency. Thank,
0: Thank you, very Counsel. Much. The case is submitted.